Galatians uh, chapter 2, please. Uh, love hearing the church sing, and uh, we have stuff to sing about that last song. Pretty tough one, huh? Uh, to think about the difficulties of life, and that those difficulties are somehow part of the sovereign plan of God. Um, it's important for us to remember that. I, I think about that often. Um, sometimes we sing that song, and it, nothing's, nothing's going on in our life. It's kind of the, the, the easy times. Uh, and I, I want to encourage you that to sing that song today that you would know it, uh, that, that God is over us. He's sovereignly working out his plan uh, all the time, but, uh, and really we know that in the times of difficulty. So uh, we're in Galatians chapter 2, and I want you to think about the human condition uh, as we begin this morning. What, I think about who you are and some of you, I know you well and intimately. I know that you've shared with me some of the sorrows of your life right now. I know that uh, many of you are private uh, and sneaky, and uh, you, you don't want to share, and you come into church, and you're kind of doing this, and that, that's fine too. Uh, we want you, this to be a safe place for you in the sense of a place for you to come and heal and learn and grow. Uh, part of that, I think would be that you would get to know people and that we could share the burdens of life together. I think that that's God's intention and the fellowship. But I want you to think about the human condition. Uh, I want you to think about the difficult things of life that you have struggled, maybe the highlight difficult things of your life uh, that you've struggled with. And, and, and know this, that that's what a church is, that somebody is always dealing with something. Someone's always uh, losing a spouse. Someone's always struggling with kids. Someone's struggling with the health of their kids. Some people are struggling with their own health. Some are worried about finances. Some are in a situation with their job where it's, it's just not ideal for uh, understatement maybe. And maybe it, it's something that they're just dealing with in their own heart. They, they struggle with everything seems to be going well and there's still an emptiness there. And they're wondering about life and this and that. Maybe there's some safety issues of government things. I'm not getting anywhere this morning. I'm not going to go there. But um, th- this idea that, that these, this is the human condition. This is where people live. And, and they always live in a context where things aren't right in the world as well. And that was the church at Galatia. That was the church at Galatia. They had history uh, personal history, but also city history. Uh, they're part of the Roman, uh, under the Romans, mostly Greeks uh, at this time. This idea that they were not Jews. They were not Jews, most of them. And uh, they were wondering what it was like to be believers. Believers. What, what is it like to walk with Jesus? What is it like to now have this newfound faith? How do we be a church in Galatia? Um, as you think about this, maybe some of you are new believers, and you come to faith in Jesus, and then you say, you, you think to yourself, maybe you actually ask a person, but maybe you don't. Maybe you're just asking this in your own mind. It's like, what do I do now? What do I do now? How do I live now? I know how I lived in the past. I know how I made decisions. I knew how things went, and I knew how my fathers and my mothers did things, but uh, I know how they do things in Galatia, but how do I do it? How do I live now that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ? 
And I, I want to say this, that I think I said it last week, at least to some of you. <coughs> we always want to do something. We always want to do something. Uh, we want to get a tattoo to commemorate the day, right? And so when we look in the mirror, we go, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I remember that day, right? Um, and and this, this idea of somehow having a visible representation of what God has done and somehow a marker uh, of something that we have done uh, that makes us feel okay, okay. And so as we think about this, I, I want you to know that as Paul was writing the letter to the church at Galatia, he was writing to them to save the Galatians from a false gospel. False gospel. And I, I want you to make this subtle distinction. I don't think Paul was wondering if he was saved. And I, I don't even think he was wondering if the, the people that he shared the gospel with are saved. If they were believing in the true gospel. I think he was concerned about the future of the church at Galatia and the message that they shared. And so he wrote the, the book of Galatians, the letter uh, to the church at Galatia. Um, and he was writing to them to save the Galatians from a false gospel and the gospel witness thereafter. Okay? And as you think about this in today's time, we're part of the human condition. We're living in a time and a place there's many ideas on what it is to be right with God. And I would say all of them, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, listen to me carefully, all of them that aren't the true gospel are a demonic work. A demonic, demonic work. Work of Satan and his demons. That, that they would want to deceive, deceive people, souls. That they would believe in something else. It was found in this book in the Jews. And it's interesting it was found in the Jews. Because when you think about that which is closest to following after Christ. Who is it? It's the Jews, right? As you look at the Old Testament you say, yeah, we're, we're basically one. That, that as you look at the New Testament, the New Testament brings into fruition and the message of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. It's, it's now the completion of that and it should have gone hand in hand. But uh, it's a demonic distortion of what it is to be right with God. The Jews, the Greeks, the Romans, the Mormons. The Jehovah's Witness, the Muslims, the Scientologists, the New Agers, the Secularists, the Moralists, and anybody else prompted by these demons to have a different idea of what it is to be right with God and to walk with Him. It's demonic. I think often uh, we look at the gospel like people look at cars. You know, oh, you know, we have some people here today that would never, never, ever buy a Ford. They don't have enough tools to fix them. You know what I mean? They just don't believe it. Sorry, Jerry. Good to see you here. Uh, uh, great mechanic. Jerry is a great mechanic. He loves Fords. Uh, anyways, but um, 
Other people are Chevy people or Dodge people, and, and maybe they, they have this idea, you know. There might even be some Tesla people here today. That's really weird, uh, you know. Can't you drive a car? You want to drive yourself? You know, I like to be in control. Anyways, uh, um, you look at these and, and people say, well, they just have a different idea. You know, we, can't we all get along? You know, Chevy people, Ford people, you know, it's just a different idea. I want to tell you that as Paul, and I've been thinking about this over and over, he really goes for two chapters and he doesn't give us much data, but he's pounding this thing of one gospel. It's the right one. It's the only one. It's the only one. I got it from God. I got it from God. This is the one gospel. And you say, Paul, that sounds so narrow. And he says, you got it. You got it. If you don't come out of these first two chapters and realize there's only one gospel, and it's a narrow gospel, and it's the gospel that comes from God, you're missing the point. And you say, well, I don't believe that. I want to tell you that you are deceived. There's a, a, a demonic work going on in you to deceive you into something else. And, and I, I want to share this with you. I want, I want this to be true for you. I want you to understand the impact of this and the importance of what we're talking about. He uh, wants to them to understand that this is prompted by demons to draw people away from the gospel of grace through faith. And I want to tell you that uh, that's a subtle, you know, that's a dot, right? It's not a band. It's the gospel of grace through faith. It's not the gospel of grace through circumcision or anything else. There's nothing else added to it. It's not the gospel of grace plus something else. Which, by the way, if it was the gospel of grace, if there is something else, it's not the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of what you did. Okay? And so as we look at this, uh, he's reiterating in our uh, text this morning, there's not another gospel. There's not another gospel. That's no gospel. That's a false gospel. That's a, a mirage. It's a deception It will not save a person. And so here we are in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you'd stand in honor of God's word, I'd like to read to you. God's word says this. Paul writes, Then after 14 years, I, I, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of the of a revelation and set before them, uh, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. But even if even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we had have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, <clears throat> so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Verse 6, and from, <clears throat> and from those who seem to be influential... What uh, they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, 
who seemed influential added nothing to me. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, uh, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me uh, for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me uh, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. God, I ask your blessing on your word. us that you would help us to understand our, our confident place As Paul was confident in his gospel, we can be confident in the gospel of Paul and of Peter that it is the one for us, the one of salvation. God, thank you for this time. Uh, Glorify yourself and your church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you were here last week, we saw that um, Paul comes to faith and he has this first contact to Jerusalem. And if you think about Jerusalem, I, I want you to think about Jerusalem as kind of headquarters of Christianity, the founding area of, you know, like, that, that's kind of where all the bigwigs went, Jerusalem. And uh, not that it was this affluent church. In fact, there's uh, plenty of evidence that they were a poor church. They were not uh, people who were affluent. And there's Paul sending from other churches, even the Greek churches, money to the Jerusalem church that they might be able to... Um, have food and uh, be able to continue the ministry there. So you have that first contact. So Paul comes to faith. He has first contact. We saw that last week that uh, he talks about in verse 18, if you want to go back in chapter 1, verse 18, and then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who is Peter. That's his Aramaic name, Cephas. He's going to use that again today. So he comes to faith three years later, which is a long time, right? It's a long time. It it shows that he was out doing ministry in the area that he got saved, Damascus, and in uh, uh, the desert, right, that he had gone around. And we don't know exactly what he did. He didn't talk uh, specifically about that. But what I want you to get here this morning, so there was three years before he made any contact uh, with those people in Jerusalem, and, and especially Peter, and it seems like a small visit in verse 18, and now we see verse 1, it says, then after 14 years. How old are you right now? Say it out loud, please. I'm 54, okay? So uh, 14 years ago, 14 years ago, I was in Petaluma. That seems like a long time ago. Uh, I, mean, I, was, I was just a young man at that time. I was 40, uh, and uh, that, that's a long time ago. You can imagine, and I, and I think this is, makes it even grander. For those of you who have come to faith as an adult, uh, you have the before Christ days and the after Christ days, right? And, and if you think about, you know, sometimes it feels like five minutes after you come to faith, you go, I don't even know who that person was over there, right? But 14 years, 14 years. And as you chart a history of Paul's life, he basically came to faith, came to faith, and you quickly have 
him sharing the gospel, planting churches. That somehow in his life, God had done a work, made him an apostle, that he was going about sharing his faith, planting churches. And what you have are the missionary journeys, and, and Barnabas being one of them, we're going to talk about him in a moment, as being a partner in that gospel work. The, the scholars think that they were in Antioch at the time of writing this, and this was part of this going from Antioch to Jerusalem that they're going to talk about. So you have the first contact in chapter 1 with Jerusalem. Now you're having the second contact. And so you, you think about it like this. Came to faith, came to faith, and then he goes to Jerusalem. It's a smaller, you know, moment, three years, and then 14 years. And it doesn't say 14 years after the three years, so we wonder if it's just at conversion. It doesn't really matter. It's either 14 or 17 years, okay? Do the math. Um, And so it's a long time. It's a long time. And during that time, Paul is going around and he's sharing Uh, the gospel with these people and churches are being planted by Paul and Barnabas. Okay, so that's what's going on. And so verse two, uh, chapter one, chapter two, verse one, it says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time, this time, it seems like he went alone before, this time with Barnabas. Let's talk about Barnabas for a a moment. We think that... uh, Possibly Barnabas, his faith predates Paul's. His conversion predates Paul's. And he was a Jew. He was a Jew by name. We, I think that I think he was from an island area of, of Jewish people. And, and so uh, he would have been known. They think that his faith came from his, even his connection to Jerusalem. Maybe he came to faith in Jerusalem through Peter's ministry. And so, as Barnabas, he was a Jew that had come to faith. And that's, that, that's important for you to think. Uh, who was Paul? He was a Jew that had come to faith, right? So, Barnabas and Paul were both Jews that had come to faith in Christ. They were working together. It says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and, it doesn't say and, but I took Titus along also. Titus now is different. Uh, Titus is Greek, or he is a non-Jew. He is a non-Jew that has come to faith in, in, in Christ. He, he's participated. Paul shared the gospel with him. He responded, and there was this sense of like child-father relationship with Titus. You, you know Titus from the book of Titus, where he was going into Crete, and he was supposed to put in order the churches. And what you get here is this picture is that Barnabas and Paul are partners in ministry. Maybe the idea that Barnabas and Paul were kind of peers. And Titus was one who responded to faith that now is being brought along as one to partner with them and be a servant in the planning of churches and the, the, the gospel work. Okay, so you have Barnabas and Titus. Um. <clears throat> Let me back up a little bit and let's pull up uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 27. And, and what I want to tell you, and it's kind of hard to like fit together, but the, the book of Acts is kind of the missionary journeys and the, the beginning of the gospel, first with Peter, then with Paul. 
And, and it's all about the gospel going out from the apostles. The, Jesus having left the apostles in charge to set up the church. And that's what you get in uh, the infancy form in the book of Acts. And then uh, much of the letters are written to those churches. And the connection there is uh, what Paul and Peter had done and then them writing to those churches and the churches after them. And so um, that's how this all comes together. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 27, this is what it says about Barnabas um, in, in Jerusalem. It says, But Barnabas took him, meaning Paul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. As you hear that, uh, you can see how Barnabas would have been kind of a character reference for Paul when it comes to the, the apostles and the leaders in Jerusalem. If Jerusalem was the kind of the center of the gospel work at that time, the church, and, and, and they were coming and they were going, I think it's hard for us to imagine, you know, we think we know what's going on uh, all around the world because we have the internet. We think we know people who know other people and we have pictures and we have this idea of who people are and so we feel confident about things. Well, they didn't know Paul I uh, talked about this last week. They didn't know Paul. That All they knew of him is by fame. And the thing that they knew about him is he was a killer of Christians. He was ch- seeking to eradicate the Christian church. And now, uh, so the idea of they trusted Barnabas and Barnabas coming and saying, this is what we know. I've seen this. He's a, he, he, his faith, he was blinded and now he sees and Jesus met with him and and I know this, he was boldly preaching in Damascus, in that area, about the faith that he was trying to destroy. Boldly in the name of Jesus. I like that, the way that says, what an encouragement. And so what you have here is 14 years later, Barnabas and Titus, Barnabas being one of reference, Titus being one of example, that would now be a Greek missionary in the work, work with Paul, later sent to Crete to put the churches. And he says, these are the ones I went up to uh, Jerusalem with. Verse 2. And, and what, what you're seeing here in these first couple of verses um, is you're seeing the second visit to Jerusalem. 14 years, Barnabas, Titus. And he said, why did I go up? Verse 2. He says, I went up because of the revelation let me just stop there and say this. Um, I, as I read this, I'm, I'm sh- uh, surprised. I think it's interesting that Paul is reiterating he has no boss. He has no boss. None of those apostles are bosses. None of the Jews are his boss. The church at Galatia is not his boss. The churches around Antioch are not his boss. He's claiming, I just listened to God. I just listened to God. And so even the way it's worded right here, he says, I I didn't go up because somebody told me to go up. It wasn't Barnabas. It wasn't Titus. It wasn't the the elders. They said, maybe you should go check up in Jerusalem to see if you really know what you're talking about. 
He, sa- he says this, that it is a revelation from God. It was God working in him and convincing him that he should go up to Jerusalem. And so verse 2, he says, I, I went up because of revelation and set before them, though privately, uh, before those who seemed influential. I think the wording here is so funny. Seemed influential. Seemed like a big deal. And, and him saying seemed, seemed influential, not to him, right? They're not a big deal to me. Um, I, I think that that's an interesting thing. Um, most of us are enamored with celebrity. We're enamored with people. Did you see who's here at church today? And, and do you know who that is right over there? And, and they're kind of a big deal. I remember um, many years ago when I was the youth pastor, uh, and uh, we used to do this thing that I, I wish we could bring back, but you, you guys wouldn't like it. Uh, it's where we, we had visitors stand up and introduce themselves. It was really great. I loved it. Uh, visitors hate that. They hate that, but we, we did it. We did it. And I remember I was the youth pastor, and you know I was you know, confident. Anyways, I was supposed to do that. And back in the back there, uh, this woman stands up and she says, Hi, I, you know, I'm visiting today. I'm Ruth Buzzy. And I said, Great to have you, Ruth. Great to have you. And um, I went on and I introduced, and, and uh, I sat down next to the pastor that I was working with, Mike Boys, and he goes, Man, you played that off really well. And I said, Thanks. What are you talking about? He said, She's an actress. She's a famous, she was in some, I think with Laugh-In or something like that was a show. And I go, I've never seen it, Mike. You know, it wasn't cool at all, you know. I, I want you to know that that happens in the issues of faith, too. And it happened in the issues uh, of, of Peter and of Paul, right? That there was this, this idea, that, oh, there's Peter. There's John. There's James. The bigwigs hang out in Jerusalem, you know, if you really want to get anything, you need to check in with Jerusalem. And Paul, what he's saying there is, I didn't go to Jerusalem. The second visit, I didn't go to Jerusalem because they wanted me to. I didn't go because you wanted me to. I didn't think that they were influential. They're no one to me. I went because I, God wanted me to. And so he went. And he says, privately laying it out, the gospel. It's interesting. Why was he sharing his gospel with them? It wasn't because they weren't believers. It was saying, this is my message that I got from God. As I lay it down before you, this is what I preach. When I go to Galatia, when I go to Antioch, when I go to all these other places, this is what I share. This is what I'm telling them. And so he, he, he laid that out. And then he says this. Um, uh, it seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. This is interesting. And you think about your life. Uh, I think some of us, you know, growing up in maybe a a tradition that you're always afraid you're going to lose your salvation. You're always afraid you're going to have like one little piece off and oh no, God's going to reject me because 
my, my theology isn't perfect in this one area. And I, I want to tell you that the, he saves you based on grace and that he teaches you for your lifetime. That's why Caleb's doing that class over there. That's why we're here this morning, right? We're growing and learning. And, and our theology that was crazy before is getting molded and shaped by the word of God. Molded and shaped by the scriptures. But, but he's not concerned about his own faith. He's concerned about that as he came to faith, he was knocked down, blinded on the road to Damascus. He's concerned that his work after that, that, that if he wasn't sharing the right gospel, if you, if you don't share the right gospel, you're, you're sharing the wrong message. You're sharing a message of demons that he said, I don't want to waste my life. And I don't want to set up a church that's really not a church. I want to make sure that I was not doing a, a worthless work. And as he shares this, uh, he, th- this is what this second visit was all about. Which brings us to verse 3. And I would say this. These next couple of verses, 3 through 5, are no change. No change. Verse 3 says this. But even Titus, now, now you switch away from Barnabas who was a peer to now Titus who was an example. But, but even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek. Think about that. And you say, well, that, that's kind of weird. Why are they talking about circumcision? Well, circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of a family and a man specifically, that he was God's. He was God's. And so the, the thinking went from the Jews is this, that, yeah, 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 uh, Jesus can be the Messiah, but you have to still show that you are God's. And you have to do this act or you are not God's. And Paul uses this as an example, Titus's life. He says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. And the idea of compelled, you're not sure what that means, but it wasn't that Peter, John, and James and the others were saying, well, you've come to faith, be, be circumcised, right? You got to. Or maybe it was that he went up and Paul brought his teaching and and they said, yeah, Paul, everything's great, except you got to tell him to be circumcised. And so Paul turns to Titus and he says, be circumcised. Or maybe Titus was there and he was listening and he goes, oh, you know, Paul, you kind of skipped the important part here. I need to be circumcised. I need to do it now. But in verse 3, it says he's not compelled. Not compelled. Verse, verse 4, this matter arose why did this matter arose, uh, arise? As you look at this, it's interesting. As you look at the book of Acts as well as other parts of the scriptures, Romans and, and others, this is a big issue. And, and circumcision in and of itself is a representation of the law of the Old Testament. And it's kind of this, the physical act, but it connects with it all those other laws as well. Like you have to obey the law. Being circumcised would be that first step. Verse 4, this matter arose because some false believers, Paul's not saying I'm a false believer. He's not saying you Galatians are a false believer. But there have been some that are false believers 
And they have infiltrated our ranks to spy on our freedom uh, we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. I was thinking about this and I was thinking, um, those who are enslaved, those who are enslaved to a a works-based salvation, they always want to enslave others, right? I I have this self-righteousness. I have these rules that make me right with God and you should follow my rules. You should do what I do. Does that sound like freedom in Christ? You should think the way I think. And if you do, you're right because I'm right. There's always a pressure from the outside. And he he says this of these false believers. He says, they came to infiltrate our ranks, to get in, to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ. And basically say, spy on that freedom and take it away and make us enslaved again. Verse 5, Paul gives like this no change in, the, in Titus's life, no change to our gospel. Verse 5, he says, We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And, and, and what this is, you can go back to the book of Philippians and see a similar a situation, but this idea that they wanted them to go back to the, the, the rules of the, the Jews and the, as a Greek to go back to the rules of the Jews and be circumcised. And he says, even for a moment. You think about that, if it was for a time period and they talked for days and, and debated back and forth and listened and heard one another out, even if it was for a moment or an hour that, that Paul would have been convinced or Titus would have con- been convinced or Peter, James, John would have been convinced that Titus needed to be circumcised. He would have been circumcised and it would have been done. It would have been done even for a moment. And then they go, oh, I really didn't need that, you know. But that's the point. Verse 5, we did not give in to them. There wasn't a moment in that time so that the truth of God, we didn't give in to that because that would have been adding to the gospel. And he said, we didn't give in to that so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Titus stood as a representative of the the preservation of the gospel. I want to look at Acts chapter 15, uh, verse 1. I I just want to show you this, that this was an an issue uh, for God's people in this, this new church. Because as they became a new church and Greeks were those who are non-Jews came to faith, it's like, so what do we do now? How do we live? What what do we have to do? In in chapter 15, verse 1, and some believe that this this time is the Jerusalem council. I'm a little confused. There were were a few visits to Jerusalem, but it seemed like in all the trips, there was this as an issue. It says this, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching Uh, The brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was their teaching. Is that if you're not circumcised, if the men are not circumcised in a family, that family, those people cannot be saved. And some of you say, well, that's stupid. That's just because you're not familiar with it, right? What, What if you came to faith and you're totally... You didn't know anything about you. All you knew was the gospel. And one of the leaders of the church or someone who seemed influential came up to you and said, 
And you say, well, what do I do now? And you say, be circumcised. And you say, well, I don't want to be circumcised. And you say, well, you have to. Because if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. I don't want to talk about this, but I kind of have to. Some people would say that about baptism. And I would say this. I always want, want people to get this. If you're saved, you should want to be baptized. You should want to take that step of faith and the, the obedience that you want to follow after Christ. Do whatever he wants you to do. But that step of baptism does not make you saved. It does not. Nor does, you know, whatever else. Getting the tattoo or, you know, there, there's nothing that you can do to add to your salvation. And so it's very important for us to see this. And this is why I believe that in Galatians, you go two chapters where Paul is hammering this. And even as I was studying, I go, man, two chapters, that's a long time. And the, Paul's writing, you know, paper's expensive, you know. Like, why is God going on and on about this? Because, as I listed before, what are all these demonic uh, distortions of the gospel? They're adding something. They're adding something. You must do this. You must do this. And so as, as you think about this, this is, there's no change. And he's preserving the gospel away from people like the ones in chapter 15, verse 1, that say, unless you do what Moses did, you're not saved. You're not right with God. Which brings us to verse 6, the verdict, the verdict. Verse 6, and and, and from those who, who seem to be influential, he says it again, right? I love it. As, as for those who are held in high esteem or influential, uh, you know, it's not a big deal to me, right? Uh, he, uh, verse 6, I'm sorry, I got confused here. No difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Added nothing to me. And so what... Uh, and I want you to see it this way. Uh, Peter, did he know the gospel? Did he, did he get right, right? He spent all that time with Jesus. Peter knew the gospel. John, the beloved one, right? Did he know the gospel? Yeah. James, most likely, it doesn't have his last name there, so it just says James. Most likely, the half-brother of the Lord, did he know the gospel? Yes, so these three, these are the big ones. And there are others, right? But those are the three. Those, those are big deals to us. We go, wow, those are, those are some big names. He, he keeps saying, are they influential? Not to me, right? I have a similar connection to God. As he, as he writes these, he said, they who knew the gospel added nothing, added nothing. And so if they added nothing, they understood or they affirmed that this was the gospel. They added nothing to him. Verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the non-Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, the Jews, verse 8, for he... 
who worked uh, through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. I'll stop there. So, so what you get now is this. And this is helpful in Bible study as you read about Peter and you say, well, why does Peter say it this way? Why does Paul say it this way? Think about this. It's not that Peter didn't share the gospel with any Gentiles. It's not that Paul didn't share the gospel with any Jews. But their primary ministry, Peter's, was to the Jews. Paul, to the Gentiles. Think about that. And so as maybe even as you relate, uh, as you're reading through the scriptures, that's maybe why Paul, uh, for some of you in your background, you go, man, that sounds, you know, I, I understand it a little bit better. Well, Paul may be speaking to you in a greater way because he's speaking to those of you who are Gentiles. I don't know if that's helpful or not. Um, so you have this distinction between Paul and Peter. But, but what I want you to get is this. Paul says this. Who... As I think about Peter and his message to the Jews, who gave him that message and that charge? God did. God worked in his life and prepared him to do that. The same God, the same message of Jesus, the same Christ that I preach did a work in me as well, that I would be ready to take that message to the Gentiles. Verse 9. James, half-brother of the Lord, most likely, Cephas, Aramaic name for Peter, and John, the the beloved one, right? Those esteemed as pillars, as you think about the church, they were sort of the foundation of the church, the starting of the church, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. What a powerful thing that's happening. So think back to the, the beginning of 14 years, maybe 17 years, if you had the three years prior, right? Paul's been doing his own thing. Paul's been doing his own thing, preaching, setting up churches. Peter and the others, uh, John, James, the others, Jerusalem and other areas. So they're, they're doing their own thing. They're, they're not connected. They come together. He shares the gospel. And it, it, it's... It's, it just says the right hand of fellowship, and we sometimes, but what it is, it's this idea, I would even say it's like a treaty, right? It's almost like this partnership has now been connected, that we are on the same team. We are preaching the same message. We are connected to the same God. We are churches that are one. Verse 9, in the middle of verse 9, he said, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Verse 10, and they asked, uh, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And what you get there is a joyful unity in different works. I want to tell you that this is kind of what happens when you go to another church that you should figure out. They should figure out for you and you should figure out for them. Are we preaching the same gospel? Do we believe the same gospel? Because if we don't, I don't want to be a part of this. And if someone comes into us and they don't believe the right gospel, he says, this isn't maybe the church for you. You know, if you, I, I want to correct you on this. And if you don't agree with this, this isn't the spot for you, right? You believe a different gospel, 
and really no gospel at all. He says, it's interesting, he says, remember the poor. And all I would say about that is this, that there are um, records of famine during that time. And for the church in Jerusalem, it seems as though they were poorer than the people in Galatia. That the church in Galatia had more uh, resources. And, and, and in some ways, the, the church at Jerusalem was starving. And so there was help from Paul and Barnabas and others too. I think they, uh, Titus even came and brought a gift. Um, as you think about this, remember the poor. And I want to point this out because I think it's important. And it might save us for the future. It might help us to think in the future. Um, when it says the poor, when it says the poor... Does the church have a responsibility to the poor? I want you to think about this. And what is it talking about right here? It's interesting. uh, When you think of poverty in our world today, uh, most people say, well, that's the government's role. It's the government. Why do we pay our taxes anyways? Right? It's a good question. Apart from the poor, it's a good question. Right? (laughs) Why do we pay our taxes? Well, but, but this idea is it's not the government's responsibility to take care of the poor. And, 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 uh, but I want to be careful here. I want to be careful. Who, individual people, like are we supposed to just you know, give and then put a pile of money in the center of Tehachapi for whoever's poor to come and get it? Who are we connected to? Who are we responsible for? I want to tell you who it is. It's the church. It's the church. There's someone in our midst that's struggling in poverty, can't food, housing, whatever. Who's responsible for that? The picture here is this. It's, it's a very simple one. And some of you are looking at me like I'm from Mars or something by saying this. Um, who should provide for my wife financially? Say it. Go ahead. You. Okay, thank you. You can even point if you'd like, you know. Uh, if, you know, I have adult kids now. What if one of them lost their job? Who should take care of them? Yeah, they should take care of themselves. But if they can't, who should take care of them? Me, right? Extend it out, even connected, right? Brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, kind of. That, 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 that's the family responsibility, um, if someone's outside of that, if someone's outside of that, if you can, and if you have the means, and if you're connected, for sure. That's, that's the way this goes. But to, to, to feel a responsibility for every poor person on the face of this earth, it, it, it's okay to have a heart of compassion, but that's not your responsibility. That's not who God has called you to. I think often in the church, we go like this. We go, oh, man, I just feel sad. You know, there's so many poor people, and I, I want to give money out there. And you look to the right and the left and say, somebody should, you know, you, you know welfare. You, you know, there's government aid. There's, there's ways to get money, you know. You say, no, that's our responsibility. Why? Because it's a family responsibility. It's interesting in this case, in the book of Acts, there was church to church that they saw brothers and sisters doing a different work in a different place. They say, that's family. We're going to send them money that they might make it. 
that they might be supported. And I want to tell you that in difficult times, your responsibility is a family responsibility and a church responsibility. It's not that you shouldn't be compassionate to those outside, cup of water, a meal, something simple, but the idea of support, long-term support, that's a family issue. And this is what uh, Peter and James and John, and I think that, I, I don't mean to laugh, but why were they concerned about the poor, do you think? Because it was them, right? Jerusalem, they, they, for whatever reason, maybe the, the famine of being in a big city and being Christians, being kind of a lower class, they were going, man, we're dying in the city. And, and we appreciate help coming in and he says just remember the poor and that's probably us okay um and he was well paul was already on board with that i want to give you three things as we close our time three things go like this first one is this um just a reminder the gospel is by grace not by any work not circumcision not baptism not communion not Giving, I don't know what else could be. Some of you have these different uh, levels of things that you do to show that you're right with God. I want to tell you it's just by grace. It's just by grace. The second thing is this, and and maybe this will be helpful to piggyback on that. The changed heart and message is proof, not works. A changed heart and a changed message is proof of the gospel has taken root, proof of salvation, not works. Remember what uh, they said about Paul? I don't know what went on. I don't know how it all came about, but that, that same guy who was trying to kill the church, his message has changed totally. He has changed and his message has changed. He's no longer killing Christians. He's compassionately sharing a different message than he had before. The changed heart and message is proof, not works. And then lastly, um, unity is in the gospel, not in a person or position. Peter was a big deal. If you remember Peter, what, what did Jesus say to him? Upon this rock, I will build this church, right? Some connect that Peter was the rock himself, Some others say that it was Peter's message of the gospel that was the rock, but Peter was somehow involved, right? Peter was a big deal. And I want to say, Peter wasn't a big deal. Paul wasn't a big deal. The message of the gospel was the the influential thing that brought the unity. The right-handed fellowship of Paul and Barnabas and Peter and John and James that came not because they had come to an understanding of one another, but because God had given him the same gospel that united their hearts, the same work. May our hearts be united in the one true gospel, the gospel of grace. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. I pray that we would be clinging to this good gospel that you've given us, that we'd be right and confident before you because of what you have done and that we'd walk with you and you'd be continuing to change us and grow us to be the church you want us to be. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.